This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It is August 2021, and we are back again. Ryan, how you doing? Hey, it's going great down here. How are you? Yeah, not so bad. You know, August, uh, COVID's back, and uh, you know, we are we are doing it all over again. All over again. If only there was a vaccine. <laughs> if only we had an answer <laughs> if to this. If only there was a vaccine. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Well, we have some COVID topic articles here, and the first one is sort of COVID-related, so we'll just hop right in. Uh, The title of the first article we're going to talk about from this coming issue is called National Estimates of the Reserve Capacity of Registered Nurses Not Currently Employed in Nursing and Emergency Nursing Job Mobility in the United States. That is The title is not quite as long as the article, but it is close. The lead author is Jessica Kastner, and her institution is Kastner Incorporated. Uh, so this is a bit of a question, and it's somewhat inspired, I think, by the recent COVID-19 pandemic. In the event of a national disaster, just how many extra emergency nurses do we have uh, laying around as a potential reserve? This is uh, all based off of the 2018 National Sample Survey of Registered Nurses, publicly available on the Department of Health and Human Services website. So... Firstly, the important definitions, an emergency nurse is someone who worked as a nurse in the emergency department of a non-critical access hospital. Career mobility describes any change in primary work setting during the time period spanning the calendar year of 2017. And just like many of these national surveys like NAMCAS and the other sorts of surveys of emergency departments, only a fraction of the entire sample completes this survey. Here, 50,000 out of 4 million And so they sort of impute the data based on this small sample. And so, as you can imagine, a more granular dive into these data is less likely to be precise uh, regarding their estimates. But essentially, from a basic estimate, these authors estimated there were about 2.5 million nurses working full-time, about 6% of whom are working in emergency nursing. There are also an additional approximately 600,000 retired nurses in their estimate. And then the remainder between 2.5 million and 4 million is the remainder working in a part-time capacity. So looking at that sort of latent capacity question, these authors found that a little more than 90% of nurses remained in emergency nursing at the end of the year. Meaning, in theory, about 10% of nurses have left emergency nursing. And those are nurses with potential emergency nursing skills who are potentially able to contribute into that sort of latent capacity due to their prior experience in emergency nursing. So, but without getting in too much into the detailed weeds of the report, I will leave that to the astute reader. There is obviously some latent capacity to bring additional nurses into emergency care, either those working in other aspects of medicine with prior experience or those recently retired. However, as we've seen most recently, the need for additional nurses in a disaster is not solely in the emergency department. We've also seen in a pandemic whose illness burden falls most heavily on the elderly or those with chronic medical conditions, the potential to appeal to the recently retired may also be limited. So this is an interesting report on the emergency nursing workforce, although I'm not sure it can be reliably framed to describe the backup resource potential for disaster conditions such as those currently being experienced. Yeah, I I think that's key. I think the the key flaw in their assumption here is that just simply the number of retired nurses equals the number of backup capacity you have. And I imagine it's far more complicated than that. I think the best we can take out of this article, there is some degree of backup capacity. How much it really is, you you certainly can't tell with this. And then the other assumption here is, is this is your only 
I don't know if it's an assumption, but the, the other thing is this, this is your only uh, way of obtaining, you know, increased capacity when there is other ways of, of achieving increased capacity, getting nurse assistants or nurses from other specialties that are not as needed during pandemics. Like in the case of COVID, you know, we weren't having any elective surgeries. So you had a whole bunch of, you know, scrub nurses who, who were being used and they could work under emergency and critical care nurses and kind of work as nurse assistants. So you can, you can actually have more patients per emergency nurse and kind of uh, increase your capacity that way. You also have the idea that, you know, like uh, as we saw with COVID, the pandemic or the emergency isn't universal everywhere, right? And so different states had different levels of acuity or or degree of seeing uh, uh, COVID patients over different time periods. And so you could always shift your, your nursing core just like you can shift your clinician core around to kind of uh, spread capacity that way. Yeah, if you've got little hot spots here and there, as uh, as we've seen happen sometimes, um, certainly there's a lot of mobility geographically within the nursing for- workforce. They, these authors also do sort of an analysis about uh, trying to look at a state level sort of latent capacity. But I, I think we've all pretty, pretty well experienced that there's a lot of travel capacity. Um, the na- nationwide mobility of nurses is pretty is quite high, especially during a uh, sort of pandemic situation where some of the licensing restrictions are relaxed. Right. And, you know, the, the travel nursing infrastructure was built way before COVID. So you're right. I think, I think that's already established. And so it, it would make that kind of augmentation to your capacity easier. Yeah. So I guess the, the short answer to the question is uh, there's a little bit. There must be some. Some some people outside of emergency medicine have an experience in emergency medicine and they may be able to contribute, depending. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All right. All right. Why don't we move on? So our next article is the impact of atrial fibrillation case volume in the emergency department on early and late outcomes of patients with new atrial fibrillation. And the lead author is Nathaniel Markov. And so I think we've all become familiar with specialty centers. We have trauma centers of excellence, cardiac centers of excellence, stroke centers, so on and so forth. And the concept here is simple, is that the idea is that as you see an increased case volume of a specific disease, you get better and more efficient at treating that disease. And there is some data to suggest that may be the case, but most of the specialty centers we've looked at so far involve diagnosis that requires some time-dependent expert clinician interventions stroke centers, trauma centers, so on and so forth. But what about a diagnosis like atrial fibrillation, where there is no or the emergent treatment of choice is less time dependent and up for debate? Do centers that see large volumes of AFib patients do better or do those patients do better than in centers where they see far fewer of them? And so these authors sought to answer that question, and they conducted a retrospective study examining all patients presenting with new-onset AFib as defined by ICD-10 code to an emergency department in the province of Alberta. And they examined the 30-day and one-year outcomes, including mortality, hospitalization, rehospitalizations, treatments in the ED, etc., They divided the hospitals into tertials of high, medium, and low frequency based on the number of AFib patients they evaluated. Over a six-year period, they saw 12,522 patients that presented to 82 Alberta emergency departments with the new diagnosis of AFib. Four of these were categorized as high-volume centers, nine as medium, and 68 as low. Unsurprisingly, high and medium volume centers were frequently more urban in location and more academic, whereas low frequency centers were more likely to be community centers and rurally located. 
Overall, the authors found some small differences in outcomes when comparing high versus medium versus low frequency hospitals. Notably, they found no difference in their primary outcome, which was a composite of death and hospitalization. The rate was essentially non-statistically different between the three groups. They did note that patients who attended medium and high frequency centers were more likely to be cardioverted and receive rhythm control medication than patients who were seen at low frequency centers. And fewer patients were admitted in high or medium frequency centers versus low frequency centers. And so, you know, it's a retrospective study and the differences they did find were fairly small. It didn't real have, really have anything to do with the hard outcomes of the patients. They were based on, you know, the treatments they received and whether they were hospitalized or not. But mortality, you know, patient-centered outcomes didn't seem to differ. And given the nature of this study, it's really hard to say that these differences were actually due to the quality of treatment of atrial fibrillation or the comfort of treating atrial fibrillation and not just due to the fact that the high-frequency centers were also large-volume urban academic emergency centers versus the low-frequency were small community centers rurally located where you didn't have as many resources. Yeah, I mean, I think the underlying sort of idea they're trying to get across is that the higher-frequency, high-volume centers do things better and different. You know, kind of like a, this, these surgical specialty centers where they just do hips or just do ankles or knees and they can, they're, they're masters of the, you know, the knee replacement surgery. So they have a lower rate of complications. You know, if you're a master of treating and dispositioning atrial fibrillation, then you're going to have better atrial fibrillation outcomes. We just don't have the data to support the fact that uh, somehow these people are doing something different and better and higher quality. And, you know, the differences that they kind of observe maybe in as far as the treatment, the frequency of different treatments, we don't know if that particularly reflects the underlying patient cohort or actually a difference in practice patterns. And as we can see, atrial fibrillation is a very low mortality diagnosis. Um, and most people who come back are mostly coming back because their symptoms uh, it's are, trouble, are troublesome in some way. Uh, atrial fibrillation, you know, people don't feel very good when their heart's racing at uh, 120, 140 you know, beats per minute. Uh, so they come back to the emergency department for whatever tr- additional treatment. And you could potentially sort of imply these different things from these data and like extrapolate, but I, I don't think we have enough reliable data here to actually follow through on that point. No, not at all. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this seems more due to the fact that you're at an academic high, a large urban center where, you know, you have more resources. You don't have to admit as many patients because they have, you could get them to some other primary care or, or, or secondary care physician as an outpatient. Whereas if you're in a rural hospital when there's not much else, admitting them might be your only answer. And so it's hard to really tell what these differences are from. And you don't really know if the patients did better. I mean, you know, you know less hospitalization. You're assuming that the patients did better, but you, but you, they might not have, right? And then, you know, just because you cardioverted someone in the ED, that that's not exactly. We have no evidence that that actually is is a better treatment for the patients. Yeah, the the nihilist here is that wow, it seems like they did more for them, and it wasn't clearly any better. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think certainly from this data, you can't really say that, that, um, but you can't say atrial that fibrillation. Either. Yeah. Right. And, and, and you certainly can't say that atrial fibrillation is a disease state that we should start developing centers of excellence for at this point and, and, and changing our, our restructuring our healthcare system um, to, to make sure all AFib patients go to a, you know, a primary oh, yeah. AFib center. Every, every ambulance should be, there's a stroke center. And the, oh, atrial fibrillation. AFib center. Everything. It's only a matter of time. Well, they've got eye emergency departments. 
It's <laughs> <laughs> not so bad. I mean, so they do. The hospital less, has its eye emergency department. It's great. Listen, if I have, if I have to see less eye patients, I'm okay with that. Uh, we have so many like little tiny uh, ocular foreign bodies here from all our manufacturing. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Every place is different. Let them go. To, right. Let them go to the eye department. Well, if only. Uh, and anywho, uh, moving right along to a, a different topic in this uh, in this most recent issue, a prospective evaluation of clinical heart score agreement, accuracy, and adherence in emergency department chest pain patients. Our lead author here is William Soares, and they are at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. Um, and now much of the world revolves around the heart score for risk stratification of patients presenting to the emergency department with chest pain. However, any scoring system is only as good as, well, it's as good as its derivation, but it's also only as good as the people doing the scoring. And this little study attempts to describe some of the accuracy of ED clinicians in generating their scores. In this study, Research assistants identified patients with chest pain and asked treating clinicians to provide them with their scores for H-E-A-R-N-T and thus the heart score, and then subsequently interviewed patients themselves to calculate their own score. Thus, the estimate for the magnitude of effect for discrepancies in the heart score. Over a three-year study period, the study identified 3,335 possible patients, approached 815, and enrolled 336. Overall, the dichotomous agreement between clinicians and researchers for identifying a low versus high-risk heart score patient was 78%. Emergency department clinicians scored 49 patients as high-risk, who were rated as low-risk by the researchers, and 24 patients as low-risk, as compared with high-risk by the researchers. As you might expect, the driver of most of this discrepancy was the history element, where ED providers tended to be uh, give patients higher scores than the scores used by researchers. ECG and risk factors added some subjectivity, and amusingly, there wasn't even 100% agreement for age and troponin interpretation. <laughs> uh, and then for further amusement, as a secondary outcome, the authors tried to contact everyone for 30-day follow-up to try and ascertain who was better, the clinicians or the researchers. And the clinician heart score application was 100% sensitive versus 86% sensitive with the research cohort, with some of the research cohort low-risk group ending up with one PCI, one cabbage, two STEMIs, and one death within 30 days. Uh, specificity, however, trended marginally higher in the research group. But the, the specifics, it's such a small study. Uh, and it's a fun little study, though, just, you know, one of many that tries to reflect the variability interpretation application in the heart score. Though, because this is research staff versus clinical staff, it's not really the same sort of generalizability of innovator reliability, but more a reflection of maybe the generalizability of findings from the heart's research studies to clinical practice in case, you know, where their research cohort is doing the assessment of heart uh, and calculating the heart score. Steve Green and David Schreiger add a little feature in which they take heart to the grindstone in an editorial, rigorously critiquing its methodology for derivation and validation. It's a lovely and thorough evaluation. And the creators of heart shouldn't take it personally, but the product simply fails many of its tests, including that featured in this article, the challenge of subjectivity and inter-rater reliability. The clear reason heart is featured in our ED care is also clear from the editorial's evaluation. It is simple and easy to integrate into practice, and clearly simple and easy trumps its limitations. Steve and David conclude by demonstrating the heart score, as described in the literature, 
cannot be considered reliable enough to meet the sensitivity threshold for misadverse cardiac events as previously described as the threshold clinicians are willing to accept and we should reconsider its routine use in practice. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's a strange article, right? Like, and the, the author's conclusion that, that we should be wary of using the heart score in routine practice, uh, you certainly can't conclude by their article. Uh, you know, Stephen Dave's, uh, editorial, wonderful. Anything they do is, is fantastic and brilliant. But the article essentially shows, yeah, that if research clinicians are doing the heart score, we shouldn't trust them as our only way of evaluating ED patients with chest pain, which is an obvious statement. But the, the emergency physicians did pretty good. It's, it's hard to say on this trial alone that, that the heart score can't be used clinically. I think it suffers from like any other decision rule in a complex diagnosis like ED chest pain. And as you said, is better than the majority of ED chest pain scores because it's simple. The, uh, the rest of them, you need some machine learning, which I'm sure we'll talk about later in this uh, podcast because we have a mandate to talk about machine learning every month. But what makes the heart score reasonably okay is the fact that it is mostly based off an EKG, a troponin, and your clinical gestalt, which is essentially, if you don't use the heart score, what you're doing. As far as ED chest pain score goes, it, it, it's rather good because it's so simple and it basically is doing what we normally do even without the score. But this study alone, I think all it's showing you is that we shouldn't let research assistants evaluate our chest pain patients and decide whether they can go home or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think from this article, we certainly wouldn't invalidate the heart score. They mentioned some of the other uh, articles that have gone out there and tried to evaluate the interrated reliability of heart score assessment. I think this sort of like demonstration is interesting because a lot of things are, you know, a lot of our scores are derived from the information gathered by research assistants and the way that they sort of interpret things or validate things themselves. And so if you're thinking about the value of a potential score and its reliability and generalizability to clinical practice and the derivation and validation studies involve research assistants gathering the data, you may end up uh, having some sort of like a little bit of lost in translation. Um, and like you said, you know, a heart score is simple and it sort of has that face validity because it's got clinical gestalt. If you do a methodologic sort of assessment about how it was for, uh, derived and validated, it's not going to do great. And then you, you start thinking about sort of the variability here in this application. And you wonder if maybe you are going to have some people for whom when they are applying it, they are going to have a lower sensitivity, a lower sensitivity for them than the rate of misdiagnoses that they expect to have. And I think that's where you, uh, Steve and David are, are getting at. Yeah, certainly the derivation was like they just sat around a table and thought of some factors that probably work, right? And, I you know, didn't want which to mention that it was basically they basically came up with it at a bar. Yeah, um, and, but but they did go and then validate those things, right? Like the the major disadvantage of deriving a score like that is, it, you know it may very well not work because, you know, you didn't use any actual cohort to actually figure out what, what tools were predictive as what weren't. But then they went and validated it and, and it worked okay. And, and again, I think it worked okay because it basically takes into account the things that we need to take into account, which is the patient's history and the troponin and your EKG. And so it performs reasonably well. I, you know, my biggest problem with the heart score is you only, you know, consistently in every single cohort are able to discharge 30% of patients, which is a really low number. And, and you know, uh, the heart score doesn't let you actually get the yield, which you possibly could if, if you just use your clinical judgment. Mm-hmm. 
And it doesn't tell you what to do. It's not prescriptive. So sure. that's my that's another issue with all these risk stratification scores is that somebody's not low risk. Now what? It's a one-way decision rule. Now you still have sort of the same same level of, I guess, you know, if, instead of admitting 100% patients, a percent of patients with chest pain, you're only admitting 70%, which is a great accomplishment. But, you know, it's still just a, a one-way decision rule in, in a sense. So what you're saying is you have to be a doctor. Ah, mon- monsters. He's <laughs> clinical judgment shocking. <sighs> All right, why don't we move on? Our next article is a prospective study of intramuscular druperidol or lanzapine for acute agitation in the emergency department, a natural experiment due to drug shortages. And the lead author is John B. Cole. So this is our monthly required publication on either druperidol or ketamine. And this time we're examining the efficacy of druperidol compared to olanzapine when used intramuscularly for acute agitation in patients in the emergency department. And we are once again going back to the now famous Hennepin Acute Intoxication Unit, which we've talked about on previous uh, podcasts. But essentially, it's a 16-bed unit in their ED that sees only patients thought to have isolated drug or alcohol intoxication. I'm sure it's one physician for 16 beds of drunk people. I'm sure it's a wonderful place to work. (laughs) To prevent elopement before safe discharge. Uh, If any listeners uh, work there, we'd love to hear your experience. So the author is 7,000 visits a year. (laughs) It's a busy place. It's impressive. than many emergency departments. (laughs) I mean, it's 16 beds. Some EDs are 16 beds. So these authors prospectively examined patient admitted to this unit who required sedation for acute agitation. They did not randomize medication administration, but due to drug shortages of both drugs over the study period, clinicians were limited to one or the other medication for periods of time. From July 2019 to March 2020, there was 1,981 patients who received medication for agitation in this unit. Uh, A small number of these patients were excluded from analysis due to receiving PO or IV medications or receiving medications other than druperidol or olanzapine. A larger group of patients were omitted because there was no research staff to enroll them at the time. So they included a total of 1,257 patients in their final analysis. 43% received IM druperidol and 57% received IM olanzapine. The median dose for droperidol was 5 milligrams, and the median dose for olanzapine was 10 milligrams. So in line with what I think most of us would give. Um, Benadryl or diphenhydramine was co-administered with droperidol 21% of the time, and olanzapine only 1% of the time. Time to adequate sedation was 16 minutes for droperidol and 17.5 minutes for patients who received olanzapine. Patients who received olanzapine were more likely to receive other medication for agitation. This occurred in 17% in the druperidol group and 24% in the olanzapine group. Also, the patients who received olanzapine were in the emergency part longer, 500 minutes for 444 minutes. Complications were fairly similar between the two groups. The patients who received druperidol experienced a little more extraparamidal symptoms, six patients versus one patient. So uh, even though this wasn't a randomized study, I think this is a fairly well-done trial. And it's nice, you know, that that they saw these shortages and were were able to to turn it into a study. You are limited in a sense for it not being randomized, especially because a great deal more patients who received Druperidol also had diphenhydramine, which has sedative effects of its own. I understand they were probably giving it to prophylactically prevent the extraparamidal symptoms. But of course, that could have created more sedation uh, in and of itself. So there's a small confounder there. In the end, I think this is probably right. Both these drugs probably work equally well. 
They both are safe with, with fairly low side effect profile. Once again, we have a study showing that druperidol is a good drug, but it's not magical and works about as good as your other antipsychotics. And of course, you know, the downside of both these drugs is it doesn't work that fast. Um, you know, 16, 16 versus 17 minutes and adding a, a benzodiazepine on top of it. Uh, at the start, like Burr said, would give you faster onset, and then you'd have the long-acting effects of druparidol or olanzapine um, when the, the short-acting effects of the midazolam wore off. Yeah, I mean, many of us practiced without druparidol for many years, and we came with, we went back to haloperidol, or we switched to, you know, ziprazidone or olanzapine or whatever ends up being, you know, there's a whole bunch of different options that all basically work about the same way, and they all have a a very similar time of onset. Uh, this is a nice sort of, it's, it's a nice comparison. They had a, a quasi-randomized trial based on this, the so-called natural experiment. It's kind of interesting. There's a little, uh, you know, there is a little bit of a editorial with it by uh, John Hershon talking about quality improvement versus research. Uh, and you know, they mentioned in this article, this is a quality improvement evaluation, but it's also sort of prospective generalizable knowledge. <laughs> so <laughs> the, it is a natural experiment under the guises of sort of research but it's also research. So there's a, there's a nice little editorial here. If you're trying to determine what you're doing is research, and it's a very fine line between quality improvement and research. And there is, a, as far as you know, making sure that the uh, rights of subjects and patients are protected, it is always better to err on the side. And this is me speaking as former IRB chair. <laughs> always better to just err on the side of having the IRB review your project to decide whether it's exempt from research oversight or whether it needs to be followed by the IRB just to make sure that all the adequate safeguards and protections are in place if there's any ambiguity. And I think a lot of these quality improvement studies will be signed off by your IRB, but the ones that aren't and the ones that have, pose some risk to patients, they need to be followed by the IRB. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, if, for example, they tried to randomize this, that would obviously quickly become research um, just to show how, how thin that line is. Well, even just the fact that they were they were basically had a research question and they were planning on creating generalizable knowledge in a prospective fashion from this natural experiment of drug shortages, even if they weren't randomizing it, if, even if any prospective collection of data, it, it, it may be minimal risk. And it, but uh, there's different ca- there's a whole bunch of different categories of IRB oversight depending on what's happening. So, um, but there's a nice little editorial that goes into that if that is if that's your jam. Yeah, the drug shortage part is interesting, right? Because they obviously didn't know about the drug shortage prospectively, right? Like, like it wasn't like they were like, oh, there's going to be a drug shortage of Reparidol later this year. Um, it's not something we tend to know prior to when it happens. So that probably happened fortuitously. Their idea was to prospectively collect the data on, you know, clinicians who use one or the other. And, and, and they fortuitively had an event where clinicians were limited to one or the other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't don't take this as a critique of this specific article. Take it as a there was an editorial published along with this article talking about the things you need to think about when you're you know prospectively gathering data and hoping for a difference that uh, a difference in practice that uh, may or may not be intentional or serendipitous, so, so on and so forth. So yeah. So right. uh, we've had our mandatory <laughs> Druperidol ketamine article, and now we're going to have our mandatory machine learning article. Is that right? Well, and our, maybe our mandatory uh, Brian Driver article even sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an airway article. What are we doing? <laughs> we'll take all the Brian Driver articles you can give us. We love it. 
All right. Uh, okay. Uh, and quickly, just talking about this machine learning article in the uh, annals this month. This one is entitled Development and Validation of Machine Learning Models to Predict Admission from Emergency Department to Inpatient and Intensive Care Units. Lead author here is Alexander Fenn, and they are at the Duke University School of Medicine. And yep, we're back in machine learning model land again, and this time using the machine to process data from the electronic health record to predict inpatient ad- admission to the uh, sort of the step down unit and to intensive care units. Ah, this is obvious garbage at face value. We already have a prediction rule for admission. It's your age as a percentage. 90 years old, 90% chance of requiring admission. Done. <laughs> but these folks think they could do better, you know, using complicated maths. Specifically, gradient-boosted models to improve computational efficiency over random forest and regression trees. Gradient boosting basically has to do with methods for creating ensemble predictions from more weakly predictive decision trees by varying the input weights to try and emphasize models that do a good job classifying the hardest members of a set to classify. Sometimes we say there's more to talk about than we can fit into a podcast, and this is one of those topics. But (laughs) in any event, as you might expect, since this is published work, the authors were successful in an operational capacity, creating a model that classifies folks into sort of their low, medium, and very high predictions. And these predictions basically for an intermediate admission around 10%, 50%, 75%, and 90%. And then 1%, 10%, 50%, and 64% for ICU admission. Another fun feature of this model is that it also runs at hourly time points from ED arrival, rather than basing its prediction from a single time point in the course of a patient's journey. These models have actually already been integrated into a dashboard, updating every 15 minutes to help forecast patient flow through the Duke University hospital system. Although, while this is mentioned, the particulars of this dashboard and how it's used are not further described. And, of course, the most predictive element in their model, after lifting the lid on the black box, is age. (laughs) Patient age. (laughs) Lifting the lid also gives some insight into how generalizable the model might be or whether it would only work in their particular cohort in their particular setting. For example, features like length of stay for discharged emergency department visits within the last year and length of stay for inpatient admissions. For example, features like length of stay for discharged ED visits within the last year and length of stay for inpatient admissions are actually fairly predictive features, which may suggest that this model likely overfits to the particular behaviors of its relatively captive patient population in the Durham area, plus the idiosyncrasies of admission and patient management patterns. But that said, rather than the specifics of what they produced, for folks interested in these sorts of applications, the methods are the interesting bit, rather than the precise outputs and whether this model could just be lifted in mass and implemented at other hospitals. <laughs> it seems to be we we play the same game every time we do these machine learning articles where where you go through the the complexity of it and I end up having to poo poo it at the very end. But <laughs> what you have here is a tool that assesses a patient at triage and then makes follow up assessments throughout their ED stay to see if they're getting better or worse, and eventually <laughs> decides whether they should be admitted to discharge or sent to the ICU. Is that right? <laughs> You mean like a doctor? Yeah, like a doctor. <laughs> well, so in theory, the idea behind these machine learning models is supposed to like cognitively unburden the physician. Um, you cognitively unburden have... the physician from our job? 
<laughs> no, no, no. So where I work and where I've worked in many places, I probably almost every hospital I've worked, there's always a nurse manager either on the inpatient side of things or overseeing the emergency department who wants to know what everybody in the emergency department is going to do in the end. You know, is this patient going to get admitted? Where is this patient going to get admitted to? What's the you know, likelihood this patient's going to get admitted? Blah, blah, blah. And they're always checking in, you know, and they're always, you know, running the board with you and trying to figure out what the flow is through the hospital so they can figure out the staffing levels in, inside the hospital. This is the application for this. This is to get uh, you know, an administrative burden off of your back uh, to some extent um, so that the people doing the forecasting for how many nurses they have to call in for a night shift to staff to open up another wing of the IC or open up another few beds in the intermediate union. That's the idea behind these sorts of dashboards is they're, they're supposed to take... It's, the doctor has things to do, more interesting things to do than to update people on the flow through the hospital. That's the application so, so, of this specific dashboard anyways. So you're, so you're saying this has nothing to do with the doctor's clinical decision, but there's someone <laughs> in a back office kind of looking at it saying, well, we're going to get this many admissions tonight, this many ICU stays, this is the kind of staff. And if you have a reasonable predictive model, you'll get close to the reality. Yeah, so it's a probabilistic output. It's like, you know, you have a pretty good idea, you know, based on, you know, there's, there's 100 patients in the emergency department and, you know, a certain percentage of them are likely to be admitted to a certain setting and a certain percentage are likely to end up in the ICU based on this machine learning model. Then you have some idea of, you know, exactly what kind of staffing you need on the back end. So yeah. uh, these sorts of operational forecasting things are good things for machine learning models. Uh, overall yeah. in the end. I suppose if it's used in that fashion, it's a reasonable tool, <laughs> but you can imagine the case where, where it starts being used in other ways to uh, force your hand on your, your, your uh, disposition. That, uh, oh, yeah. Well, like a little pop-up alert can... when you log in like an hour and a half into your e-patient's ED stay saying, oh, it looks like this patient's yeah. got about a 64% chance of admission. <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> uh, well, that seems like a coin flip to me. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. Please don't. Uh, our last article of the month is Improve Access to Care for Opiate Use Disorder, a Call to Eliminate the X Waiver Requirement Now. And the lead author is Gail D'Onofrio. So essentially, this is an editorial arguing in favor of getting rid of the X waiver requirements needed by clinicians to prescribe buprenorphine. And it's a really nice article that starts off by giving us some historical context of the X waiver and why it was initially put in place. It then goes goes on to all the reason that it's antiquated and should be eliminated and describes how emergency physicians are in a prime position to initiate MAT therapy and how the current X waiver requirements are barriers to these treatments. And finally, they address the current health policies that are attempting to eliminate the X waiver and what measures have been taken and are being taken to get these policies to become law. I don't want to go into too many of the details in the podcast, but I encourage everyone to kind of read it, go through it. It really gives you a nice background history where we are in an understanding of the barriers that we come across when trying to initiate MAT therapy. Yeah, that's this is one topic for which when or if I come back to the United States, I'm not going to have any clue what's going on anymore because we have no opiate no use and misuse down here in New Zealand. Um, so I actually don't have to worry about this at all. No um, opiate use, other no drug gun violence. Alcohol issues. <laughs> no, no, I won't know how to treat a gunshot injury anymore down no here COVID. in the South what, what, what do you guys do in the emergency department? <laughs> We're masters of paracetamol overdoses. I'm sorry, acetaminophen overdoses. That is the uh, that's sort of like the the self harm mode of choice down here to some extent. Um, and then we do have methamphetamines and cannabinoids of some sort, uh, you know, synthetics mostly. Uh, but uh, opiates are not a huge problem in this specific community in which I work. So acetaminophen, snake, and spider bites is pretty much your job. 
No, there's no snakes in New Zealand. <laughs> You're confusing us with that other continent nearby that wants to kill you. So yeah, there's plenty of, plenty of lethal spiders and snakes over on, Austra- on Australia, but uh, New Zealand has one sort of Lactrodectus, I think, spider, but we don't uh, end up running into much trouble with that. Wow, it's almost get, like you're in paradise. Uh, sometimes we get, uh, I guess, sheep bites now. We don't, really sh- we don't have sheep bites. <laughs> All right, I think that wraps us up on this note. Um, yeah. Any comments, questions, or concerns, or want to know more about the treatment of sheep bites, we can be reached at annalsaudio at asep.org. Otherwise, Ryan, unless you have any more uh, interesting stories on the, the emergency medicine down in New Zealand, we will talk to you all next month. And this was Rory Spiegel. I'll save them for another time. <laughs> and Ryan Radecki. And this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine Podcast.